Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in, of, in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come as your people to worship you, we are humbled by the incredible spiritual blessings that you have bestowed upon us in Jesus. That you have called us here this morning to worship together, to see you glorified. And Lord, we don't come in the confidence of the flesh thinking that we can exalt your name and glorify you in our own strength. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your Spirit. And so you, we pray that you would fill us with your Spirit this morning. That your Word would clearly reveal as it is explained and preached the Gospel of Jesus, the glory of Jesus and what it means to us, and how we are to live in light of what He's done. And so, Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would come and do that, and that we would be changed as a result, and that we would live with renewed vigor for the advance of Your Gospel, that we would rejoice ultimately in that. We ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Philippians this morning. And so far, we have clearly seen that the great theme of the book is joy in Christ Jesus. And we're going to see how this unfolds more throughout the rest of the book. But first we saw that we experience joy because we are in Christ Jesus. We are united with Jesus. He is the source of our gospel identity as saints in Jesus, slaves of Jesus, and children of God in Jesus. And because of our union in Christ, we experience the joy of a partnership in the gospel together, which is what Chad preached on last week. And because of our union in Christ and our partnership in the gospel, we want to see God's gospel advance. We want to see the good news of Jesus advance. That's what our partnership is. It's a partnership in the advance of the gospel in our city, in our country, and to the ends of the earth. And so when we use this term, which Paul does in Philippians 1.12, the advance of the gospel or the advance of the kingdom of God, he's using a military term there. 
He's, he's, he's wanting to conjure up this idea of an army that's advancing against its enemy. It's crushing its enemy. It's gaining new ground as it fights against its enemy. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, who are the opposing forces to the kingdom of God? What's the opposition? Who's fighting against the kingdom of God? And the answer to that is it's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of man has set itself up in opposition to the kingdom of God and its advance. We see in creation that God established his kingdom on earth. He created all things and he created all things to submit to him as his king to rejoice in Him, to live in freedom and joy, living under His rule and His reign and for His glory and for His exaltation. But one of His creatures, Satan, said, I don't want to live as a servant in your kingdom. I want my own kingdom. I want to live for my own glory. I want to live to exalt myself. I want to have a realm in which I can exercise um, rule and reign. I want to be the king of my own kingdom. And so he rebelled against God's rule and reign. And God cast him from, from his presence for his rebellion. And then what did Satan do? He went to earth and he tempted Adam and Eve. And he told them, he said, God's told you that you, you shouldn't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because then you'll die. He's lying to you. He, you're not going to die. He knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree that you're going to become like him. And don't you want to be like him? Don't you want to be the one that's in control? Don't you want to be the king of your kingdom, living for your glory and your exaltation? And so man believed the lie and ate the fruit. And from that point on, the kingdom, the, the uh, men joined the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. They joined Satan in his their rebellion against God and the advancement of his kingdom. And we see this all throughout the pages of Scripture. And that's why Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come um, because we were once rebels. We were once at war with God. We didn't want to see Him exalted. We wanted to exalt ourselves. And so Jesus had to come to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live because we were in rebellion to God. But we owed that life to God, and so Jesus came and lived it on our behalf. And Jesus died on the cross, the death that you and I, as rebels against God, deserved. He experienced the fullness of God's wrath in our place. And then he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand and sent the Holy Spirit to change our hearts and to unite us to himself through faith. And now, in that transaction, we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of God's glorious light, into the kingdom of His Son. And so we're still in the battle now, but we're fighting for the right side. We're fighting for God in the advancement of His kingdom. But in this battle, we have, we have three enemies. We have two external enemies and one internal enemy. Our two external enemies are the world and the devil. And then our internal enemy is the flesh. It's that principle within our hearts that even though it's been, it, it, it's dominion no longer rules and reigns in our hearts, its influence is still there. 
And so we constantly have what Galatians describes as this war between the flesh and the spirit. The, the desires of the, of the spirit are to advance the kingdom of God, but the desires of the flesh are to advance the kingdom of self and our own glory and our own fame. And we all struggle with this, don't we? We saw that the disciples struggled with this. When Jesus came and said, I'm going to establish my kingdom, it's come. They were always having debates amongst themselves as to who was going to be the greatest. Because, see, they weren't ultimately concerned about the advancement of God's kingdom. They were more concerned about advancing their kingdom, the kingdom of self. And we do the same thing. We want to live for our own exaltation, not God's. I have to constantly be on my guard to not somehow try to use Jesus to try to advance my own little kingdom, to somehow use religion to advance my own little kingdom and my own little causes. Because we all do this, right? We, we come before Jesus and we say, well, I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church, I work hard. So you need to give me the family that I want, Jesus. You need to give me the marriage that I want, the relationships that I want, the money I want, the job I want, the respect I want, the love I want, the comfort I want, the life I want. We end up using Jesus to get something out of him. Rather than treasuring him above everything else, we treasure something else and try to use him to get at it. We treat him like a spiritual, cosmic Santa Claus. I've been a good little boy. I've been a good little girl, Jesus, so you need to give me what I want. It's true. And see, the question we need to ask is, who's at the center of the kingdom that you're living for? If you're living for the kingdom of self, then you're at the center of it. And your goal in life is to seek to have everyone and everything bend to your will and your desires. Ultimately, you're seeking to exalt and glorify yourself because you believe the lie. And I believe the lie that in doing so, we will experience true joy. But the chief end of man is not to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. That's the chief destruction of man. That's an affront to the glory of God and that's the suicide of joy. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God created us to live life under His rule and authority True joy will not be found in your little kingdom or my little kingdom, the kingdom of self, because the kingdom of self is an illusion. It's a lie. You're not in control of anything. It can't bring you true lasting joy because your kingdom will not last. But the kingdom of God will will. Jesus' kingdom will last for all eternity. He established it with His first coming and He will fully and finally consummate it with His second coming. On that glorious day when Revelation 11.14 is fulfilled and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the center of the kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom. And so he gets the glory. And we, as his people, 
as his servants get the joy. True joy is found in treasuring Jesus and thus living all of life for the advancement of his kingdom, his gospel, his good news. And this morning, we're going to take a look at what we can expect as we live for God's kingdom. We're going to see what we can expect life to look like as we now live for the advancement of God's kingdom, the advancement of the gospel. First of all, we can expect persecution from the world. We can expect persecution from the world. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here Paul is encouraging the Philippians to know that what has happened to him hasn't hindered the gospel. Rather, it served to advance it. Well, what is it that's happened to Paul? Well, after completing his third missionary journey in which he went to all the churches in Asia Minor and Macedonia and Greece and encouraged them and also collected some funds from them to take back to Jerusalem to be dispersed to the, to the poor there, Paul went back to Jerusalem to give the funds to the church and while he was in Jerusalem, he went to the temple as what was his normal custom. And while he was there, he was accused by the Jews of defiling filing the temple by taking a Gentile into one of the inner courts. Paul didn't do that, but they accused him of it, grabbed him. They were about to beat him to death, but the Roman soldiers stepped in and saved Paul. And from that point on, he was in prison. He was in prison. First, he was taken before um, the Jewish council to be tried, and they plotted to kill him. Then he was tried before um, the governor of Caesarea at the time, Felix, and then Felix's successor, um, Festus. And at that point, Paul was worried that Festus was going to hand him over to the Jews um, to be killed. And so all these years had passed and he was experiencing this suffering and this persecution um, at the hands of the Jewish council and the Romans. So at that point, Paul appealed to Rome. He said, I want my case to be taken before Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. And so he was then taken to Rome where he was now under house arrest. So Paul was experiencing all of this persecution. But Paul wasn't surprised by it. Paul wasn't surprised by the suffering that he was experienced because he knew that Jesus promised that this is the way life would be for his disciples. Jesus promised that as we live to advance the kingdom of God, we would experience persecution at the hands of those who live for the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. In John 15, 18 through 20, Jesus said, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And again, in John 16:33, Jesus says, In this world, you will have tribulation. So Jesus has promised us, you will suffer. I suffered persecution, and so will you. 
It's not a promise that we oftentimes like to meditate on and really claim, uh, but it's true nonetheless. Jesus promised we're going to experience suffering. Now, because Paul knew that the Christian life was a life of suffering, he said something very interesting in Colossians 1.24. Listen to what he says. Colossians 1.24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, listen to this. And in my flesh, that is in my body... I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now you may be wondering, what does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, let me tell you first of all what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christ's work on the cross, his atonement for our sins, was somehow incomplete. What did Jesus say right before he died on the cross? He said, it is finished. Our redemption was completely accomplished by Jesus. There's nothing lacking that needs to be added to it. So Paul is not talking about redemption here. What he is saying is that the advancement of the gospel will only be completed through suffering. You remember when Jesus came to Saul when he was on the road to Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul didn't say, Jesus, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting the Christians. Because there's a spiritual truth here that because of our union with Jesus, when we as his people, as his church, are being persecuted, he's being persecuted. And so we as the body of Christ are carrying forward his work, that is the work of advancing the gospel, spreading the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard it. And as we do that, the only means that can be used is through our suffering, is through resistance on the part of the kingdom of darkness. But Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, not because I like pain, but because I know that through them, through my trials and tribulations, the gospel will advance because Jesus has promised it. So brothers and sisters, is that the way that we see our suffering? Far too often, that's not how I see the suffering in my life. I see the suffering in my life as impediments or barriers or roadblocks to me advancing my own little kingdom, the kingdom of self, from getting what I really want. And so what we begin to do is we begin to say, Why, God? Why are you causing these sufferings to come into my life? I'm not trying to belittle the pain and the difficulty that we experience as we go through those. But what we need to do is rejoice in the truth that the Bible reveals to us that God purposes those sufferings and trials and tribulations and the persecutions that we experience at the hands of unbelievers for the advancement of His gospel. And so we can rejoice in that as we go through them. So first of all, we can expect persecution from the world. Second of all, we can expect rivalry within the church. We can expect rivalry within the church. Look at verses 15 and 17 with me. Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Here Paul is saying that his imprisonment has had a rather interesting effect on some of the brothers. Some of the brothers, as a result of his imprisonment, have been emboldened to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
But they're doing so insincerely, out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. Now you may be asking yourself, why were they envious of Paul? Paul was extremely influential in the times of the early church. He was, he was planting churches all over the then known world. He was extremely involved in the, the founding of the churches. And he was uh, seeing lots of converts and Christians took him seriously and looked up to him as an example in the faith. And so while Paul was in prison, these rival preachers, these brothers that were doing what they were doing out of rivalry for for Paul, were seeing it as an opportunity to try to advance their own influence and their own popularity. And so they were trying to advance, they were using the gospel to advance their own agenda and their own glory and their own influence. And Paul says two very interesting things about these, these um, rival preachers. First of all, he calls them brothers. He says they're fellow Christians. And so we need to take note there and realize that none of us, even as Christians, are above selfish ambition or rivalry or envy. And so we constantly need to be checking our motives. Why are we doing what we're doing for the kingdom of God? Is it to advance our own Agenda, or is it to advance the kingdom of God and see his gospel go forth? And secondly, Paul doesn't question their message. He knows that they're proclaiming Christ. What he questions is their motives. You see, if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul wouldn't have a problem rebuking them like he very strongly does in Galatians, where he basically says, if somebody else preaches another gospel to you, let him be accursed. But Paul, in spite of their rivalry, in spite of their selfish ambition, trying to actually afflict Paul, which is what he says in verse 17. How are they trying to afflict Paul? They want Paul to feel jealous of the fact that they're robbing him of his influence and popularity. And what Paul says is, I'm not going to play those games. So what? Whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. I'm not trying to advance my own cause or my own agenda. I'm advancing the kingdom of God. And so in that I rejoice. The application there for us brothers and sisters is that as we interact with each other in this church and with other believers outside of the church, we need to realize and come to grips with the fact that we're going to be interacting with other people who have impure motives. So long as the church is made up of those who have the struggle between the flesh and the spirit going on inside of them, we're all going to be a people of mixed motives. And so how are we going to respond to other people when we see them trying to advance their little kingdom against our kingdom? How are we going to respond to that? Are we going to become bitter and angry? Are we going to gossip against them and about them? Are we going to go around trying to be the motive police and make sure that people are not only doing the right things but doing them with the right motives? You want to talk about creating dissension in the church. No, we're to respond the way Paul does and rejoice in seeing the gospel advance through them. I'm not saying there's not a time to confront each other, but to rejoice as Paul does in the advancement of God's kingdom, seeing the evidences of grace in them and what he's doing and rejoicing in that supremely. So first of all, we've seen that we can expect as we live for the kingdom of God that we can expect persecution from the world. And we can expect rivalry within the church. And thirdly, we can expect gospel advancement in the world. Gospel advancement in the world. Look at verses 12 through 13. 
Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul wants the Philippians to know that all of the persecution that he has experienced has actually served to advance the gospel. For those of you who have been here with us from the beginning when we started preaching through the book of Romans, you know that Paul in Romans 1 says that he was eager to preach the gospel to those who were in Rome. His passion was to see the gospel advance in this most influential city of Paul's day. And now as he's writing the Philippians, guess where he is? He's in Rome. He got there in a way that he probably never would have expected, but he also has access to a group of men to share the gospel with them that he could have never imagined in his wildest dreams he would be able to preach the gospel to. And he was seeing it go forth. Because you see, while Paul was under house arrest, he was chained 24-7 to the wrist of an imperial guard. An imperial guard, it was this group of nine to 10,000 elite soldiers who were handpicked um, to, to serve as the imperial guard. They got extra pay. If you were in the Roman army, you wanted to be one of the imperial guardsmen. They received special assignments, two of them being to guard uh, the Caesar, to guard the emperor. And the second one was to actually guard the imperial prisoners. And Paul was an imperial prisoner. Since he had appealed to Rome and he was a Roman citizen, he was considered an imperial prisoner. So he was chained to one of these soldiers as they took their turns um, on the watch. And as he was chained to them, he would preach the gospel to them. And he was seeing some of them come to Christ. These hardened men who had seen war, who had experienced torture, who had killed people, who had seen their friends die, in order to be good at this sort of job, you had to be hard-hearted. And Paul was sharing the gospel with them. And if I can be honest with you, if I was in Paul's situation, I'm not so confident that I would have been, um, been confident that the gospel would have advanced among them. I probably would have sat around and felt bad for myself in my, in my house while I was under house arrest, writing the Philippians saying, this is unjust. You need to contact this person and this person and try to get this fixed out for me so I can get out of here. But that's not what he's doing. He's tell, sharing the gospel with them. Why? Because he knows the implications of the Great Commission when Jesus says in Matthew 28:19, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Paul knew that Jesus is sovereign. The one whose kingdom Paul was advancing was in control of all things. Nothing was outside of Jesus' control. So Paul knew that it ultimately did not depend on the willingness of the person to whom he preached the gospel, but on the sovereign will and power of King Jesus to radically transform and regenerate their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so Paul spent himself to advance the gospel amongst all peoples wherever he was. He rejoiced, I can only imagine, in, in Jesus' words where he said in John 10, 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear and listen to my voice. Paul knew that God 
had chosen from eternity past and given to Jesus a people from all nations, tribes, and tongues, and that as Paul proclaimed the gospel, it would advance among them. He didn't know who the elect were, but he knew they were out there. And so he preached the gospel to every, everyone, enduring everything for the sake of the elect, knowing that those whom the Father had given Jesus would come. They would listen to Jesus' voice. And this was what encouraged Paul to carry on when from a human perspective, things looked bleak. This is why he preached the gospel to these hardened soldiers. He knew the gospel would advance. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, unfortunately, when we're living for the kingdom of self and trying to advance our own kingdom, we're pretty hesitant at times to preach the gospel to certain people, aren't we? I know I am. We're, wonder, we're, we're concerned that well, they're not really going to respond positively. I, I don't think there's really any hope for them. Or maybe we'll say, I don't want to offend them. Oh, they, they could get, the gospel's offensive. They could get really upset. Or maybe we don't want them to think that we're crazy. Maybe it's someone that we work with and we don't want to share the gospel with them because we'll think that they're crazy. If I can confess to you, brothers and sisters, um, I do this. My, my landlords, I rent an apartment and my landlords are not believers. They, they don't believe in Jesus. And I've cracked the door a few times as I've spent time with them, um, sharing, uh, kind of peeking the door open on Jesus and what I'm all about. But I haven't really gone after it. You want to know why? I'm honestly afraid of offending them. I'm afraid of offending them and having them kick me out or raise the rent or not give me the services that I'm used to. I'm not even joking. That, that's a, a confession to you guys. We can laugh about it. Um, but I feel devastated by it. Because you see, in that moment, I'm caring more about my own comfort, more about advancing my own little life, my own little kingdom, the kingdom of self, rather than the kingdom of God. Instead, what we should do is rejoice in the promises of Jesus and unashamedly proclaim the gospel to everyone that we come into contact with, regardless of what we think the outcome will be. Because the reality is, it's a miracle that anyone believes. From the hard-hearted sinner who's a criminal to the self-righteous, upstanding citizen, it's a miracle of God that anyone believes. It's a miracle that any of us in this room believed. It's God's work. We have but to proclaim Christ and pray fervently and then see God work to advance His kingdom in the gospel. So as we live for the kingdom of God, as we live for the advancement of the gospel, we can expect persecution from the world. We can expect rivalry in the church and we can expect gospel advancement. And lastly, we can expect gospel advancement in the church. We can expect gospel advancement in the church. Now you may be wondering, what does that mean? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I understand how the gospel can advance in the world amongst unbelievers, but how does it advance inside the church, inside believers? Well, look at what Paul says in verses 14 through 16 with me. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. What Paul is saying is that while some 
that is the minority of the brothers, have been emboldened to preach the gospel out of rivalry and envy, most of the brothers have been emboldened to preach the gospel out of love and goodwill. So they're not trying to compete with Paul. They're joining Paul in the gospel advancement, the the good news of God's kingdom and what Jesus has done. And so you may be wondering to yourself, though, how did Paul's imprisonment embolden them to preach Christ? How did seeing Paul's suffering and the consequences of his preaching the gospel encourage them to preach the gospel? Well, have you ever, this is how it worked. They saw Paul in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of the persecution, and they saw Jesus sustain him. They saw Paul live out the words that he had written to the Corinthians, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that God's grace was sufficient for Paul in this situation, that Jesus was enough for him, that Jesus was upholding him, and as a result, the gospel was advancing. And so as they saw that happen in Paul, they said, I want to give myself in radical new ways to the gospel as well. If, if the world can take it all away and persecute me and cause me to suffer, and yet Jesus will sustain me and I'll rejoice and delight in him and the gospel will advance, what do I have to fear? I'm going to go for it. Have you ever experienced that, brothers and sisters? Have you ever observed a fellow brother and sister in suffering and have been encouraged by the work of God in them as they've gone through it? I have had the incredible privilege of watching Chad go through some of the most tremendous heartbreak I can ever imagine. And yet through it, to see Jesus to sustain him, to see God's grace be sufficient for him in his life, to see him rejoice in Jesus through all of it encourages me and emboldens me to let go of the little kingdom and give myself wholeheartedly to the advancement of the gospel fearlessly because of what God is doing in his life, because it is serving to advance the gospel. It's an incredible blessing to experience that. And brothers and sisters, there is no greater joy than to be a part of the kingdom of God and to live all of life to see it advance. The kingdom of self cannot deliver what it promises. It offers us joy, but it delivers discouragement and fear and anxiety and anger and bitterness and despair and envy and rivalry and selfishness and a host of other evils. The kingdom of self cannot give us true lasting joy because we're at the center of it and we were not made to live for our own glory seeking to exalt ourselves. We were made to live for the glory of the one who made us. True, lasting joy is found in Jesus and living for his kingdom and the advancement of the gospel. So as we live for the furtherance of his kingdom, we can expect persecution in the world. We're not greater than our master. If Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. It hasn't only been appointed for us to believe, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. But let us rejoice that those are the appointed, ordained means that God has ordained through which the gospel will advance. Let us rejoice in that. 
And we can expect rivalry within the church so long as the church is made up of people like us, fallen human beings in whom the struggle between the flesh and the spirit is still raging. There will be impure motives. So let us check our own hearts and free, flee from selfish ambition. And as we see it in other people, let us pray for them and be patient with them, rejoicing in what we see God doing in them. Not just focusing on the impure motives that they have. Knowing that the gospel will advance through them. And we can expect and rejoice that the gospel will advance in the world. Christ will build His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will bring all of His sheep into the fold. And let us rejoice and be humbled by the fact that He uses us to bring the sheep in that we will be used to advance the gospel. And finally, let us rejoice that we can expect the gospel to advance in the church. As we suffer and as we watch each other suffer, we can expect the gospel to take root deeper in our hearts and the hearts of other believers around us. There is no greater joy than to know that Jesus has rescued us and brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light. There's no greater joy than to be a part of the kingdom. And so I admonish you, as I admonish myself, to heed the words of Jesus for His glory and for our joy, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the fact that You have rescued us. You have bought us. You have ransomed us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of Your Son, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Your glorious light. And we thank you that we have, um, we have now been given the desires of the Spirit to see the gospel advance, to see the kingdom of God advance through the persecutions that we receive, through the trials and tribulations. Even though there's rivalry in the church, Lord, we can expect the gospel to advance in the world and in us. And we rejoice in that. And so we pray that you would take your word and cause us to live more radically for the advancement of your gospel in all areas of our life. May that be the main aspiration of our lives. Lord, not in somehow attempts to earn your approval, but because we already have it in Christ Jesus. You have graciously given us your favor because of Christ's work, because of what He's accomplished. And so now we have the incredible joy and privilege not to live life for the advancement of the kingdom of self, but to live for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And we rejoice in that and pray that you would further that work in our lives so that your Son's name might be proclaimed, that He might be glorified to the ends of the earth.